Hey everyone, Caitlin here. We'll be hosting a podcasting 101 workshop on July 13 in Melbourne. If you're thinking about creating your own podcast and have no idea where to start, or you'd just like to learn the ins and outs of building a top rating show and want a cheat sheet of all the tips, tools, and tricks to make it happen, then head over to our website, ladybrains.com.au or our Instagram, lady.brains to find out more. We're walking down the street and he pointed out a store. That space would be great for you, but it's way too big see if you can even get a pop-up lease or just even test out Bondi markets and instead of tackling Bondi markets we're like nah let's just call up the leasing agent of this store so the next thing you know we had signed a lease and we were supposed to be opening in six weeks hey welcome to ladyland a podcast by lady brains where we chat to ambitious women about what it takes to become an overnight success. Huge spoiler alert, the overnight success does not exist. We're your hosts, Caitlin, Anna, and Maeva. Now get comfy, fellow lady brains, and ride with us to Ladyland. Katja and Vera are two best friends and former housemates who built a multi-million dollar business from their kitchen table. That business is Nimble Activewear, the trendy Bondi-based fitness label with the bold colours and prints that you would recognise from a mile away. The girls had the idea for Nimble back in 2014, when they realised there were no real activewear brands available that were high-performing, fashionable and affordable. What started out as a passion project quickly became a thriving business, so much so that Katja very soon after gave up her career in fashion to work in the business full-time. The two have a pretty remarkable friendship. When Katja went full-time, Vera continued to work as a lawyer so she could financially support the two of them until it was time for Vera to dive in fully as well. This episode is a little longer than usual, but the girls were so generous with sharing their story that we simply couldn't stop asking questions. There's so much to take away from this episode, including how the girls approach their family for funding, how they use an open-to-buy to manage stock effectively, and the importance of building a thriving community around your brand. We sure hope you've got your notebooks ready. So you guys were one of the first. You predate P Nation and a couple other, you know, big brands out there for sure. Can you tell us about the moment that you both had the idea for Nimble? Where was it sparked? It was sparked in the studio. Vera was living in Sydney at the time and I was actually working in London and um, out in Australia for three months trying to finalise my European passport. Vera and I are best friends from high school, so Vera living up in Sydney, I just decided to spend a bit of time in Sydney. We're constantly going to the studio, whether it be yoga, Pilates, and it was also at the rise of that studio workout, and we noticed that a lot of people were head to toe in Lululemon. We would wear it, and why they created great products They were very functional, very comfortable. There was this fashion aesthetic missing and also the price point was quite high. Like we're looking at $120 to $140 for a pair of leggings. So you could only own a couple and you're constantly going home, putting them in the wash so they could be in your gym bag for the next day for your next workout. So we thought there has to be a better way that we can fuse function and fashion in activewear. We still needed garments that would perform technology um, and performance was key, but we wanted to bring this fashion element to it. You know, you still had the bigger guys like your Nikes and Addies. However, they were very like technical and masculine. I think Mm. there's a term out Mm. there called pink it and shrink it. It's like, you know, (laughs) take the menswear range, resize it down, add feminine colours to it. That's where Nimble was born. It was like studio workouts together and um, seeing a bit of an opportunity in the market. It came out of a personal need and desire that of products we wanted and we couldn't find it out in the market. So in the beginning, you both invested, I think it was a hundred grand, a hundred grand each. So that's a big investment. Mm -hmm. How did you have the courage to do that? At that time, how did you know it was going to work? When we invested the 100K, it wasn't 100K initially up front each. It, um, I think it started at like, you know, 40K each because we needed to firstly invest in stock mm. and build a website. And that happened really quickly and that's 
when it just kind of snowballed and we're like, okay, we've got to keep going. We've both invested like 40K into this. We're quite naive with um, planning out the early days. We just thought, okay, let's look at it from a perspective of like how much inventory do we need? What are we going to sell it off? Um, Let's build a website. Then we can get going. We will basically. The, the money will come in and people will buy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and That's how it works, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> that is definitely not the case. You know, it takes a while, especially when you're self-funded to get the mm. sales in the door. And we quickly realised that, okay, we need to start tipping in a bit more money. And then when it got to a stage where we had dipped into Everything. our. Yeah. Our mortgage is too much that it was getting to risky territory that we started um, chatting to family. We saw traction in the business and I think it's that hard thing because you've invested a portion of money that is kind of high risk and it's a lot of money at that stage mm. of your career or mm. life that we started chatting with family and they saw the potential in it. However, we loaned an additional 100K off them. However, it came at points where his initially like 20K hit this milestone, you can get another 20. Mm. And, you know, that went on for two and a half years of business. We weren't profitable for the first two and a half years. And yeah, between day dot to two and a half years in, it was a total investment of around 300K. Yeah. And then we got to a point where we started gaining a lot of traction. Um, our store in Bondi Beach was doing really well. The team was slowly growing and online was really growing. We were um, investing wisely into the digital space and we started seeing great returns and that then fueled us to do um, our Armadale store and really grow the business. So now after two and a half years, it's cash flow is no longer the issue. It's um, thinking about how we can invest wisely into the next stage and where is best to invest our money. But it was definitely tough for the first two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, moving out your suppliers and it was very much like a, a Jenga puzzle, you know, mm-hmm. who do we pay this week? Who can we pay next week? You know, mm-hmm. and paying ourselves, well, that was completely out of the question in the in the early days. So I just want to kind of cycle back to that conversation that you had with family and friends because I think a lot of people that we've asked have said, oh, yeah, I went to family, I went to friends, I raised money. But I kind of want to know what that conversation looked like and you said that you structured in terms of, you know, there were really clear milestones. How did you have that conversation? How did you structure it? And did you ultimately pay those people back or did they get a stake in the business? How was that all um, structured? So the first person we went to was my dad. He's from a business background. He's had quite a few businesses. He was very across the business and what we had initially put in. He also realised that we were having sticky points. So while we were sitting with him one day going over our figures and what we were achieving, it was more of a probably offer from his, like his side. He just sparked the idea in our heads because we were in a sticky point but there was so much growth and I think Mm. it was part of the discussion Mm. of like we're growing so much and like what's happening, you know, we need to fund this to keep going because we're on a tipping point and because he's done, he's had so many Mm. businesses before, I guess looking back now what he could see was this is probably – where a lot of businesses get, you get a lot of traction and you get to a tipping point, but you do need that little push over the edge when you've invested all of your own money. Um, and that was poor planning on our part. Um, and I think the idea got seated in our head and then that's when we realised actually we need to ask for help mm. and a loan to be able to get us to the next stage. And that loan has been paid back. So um, it was an equity, it was a yep. loan and um, it was discussed that when we were ready, you know, that's the beauty of family, family loans. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> you can um, kind of write your own rules a little bit. Yeah, you yeah. can. And, you know, they want you to succeed as well. Totally. So it alleviated that pressure than um, seeking it externally yeah. with yeah. interest on it. So, you know, that was really good for our business because we could really focus on operating and growing. And then when we're at a stage where we could start paying that loan back, we did. When you're going out and asking someone for money, make sure they've got the money and they're not dipping into their <laughs> life savings because, yeah. like, you know, if something were to go belly up, I think that's where 
and you can't pay them back. That's yeah. where the issues can Start stem from. Yeah. Um, like 100K is a lot of money, but um, make sure you're taking it from family members that, you know, mm. aren't having to, yeah, mm. dip into yeah. their or, life savings. You know, take bits of it from yeah. different people yeah. um, or just work out like how much you might need. A really good learning from how we structured it was that it wasn't 100K here you go. Yeah. It was little bits and we had to reach milestones. And I think sometimes as a small business owner, when you are it, it's good to have some sort of tangible number that you're striving to that someone else is holding you accountable to. It's like you don't have a boss anymore and this person isn't your boss, but they're holding you accountable. And what that means is if something doesn't work, that's fine, but you need to be able to explain why. Yeah. and know why it didn't work and what levers you're going to pull differently next time so that it works. I think often you don't have that reflection process and that's what we're trying to make sure we actually do properly now is have that reflection process. Things can fail, but we need to know why they didn't work. So I want to go into, um, I suppose, the early days and the skill set and even today actually. You know, Vera, you come from a law background, Katja, you worked in fashion. How did you both contribute to the business in the early days? How do you split the responsibilities? In the early days, it was about, you know, we had some very specific skill sets and so we would pick up those parts, but we had to do everything. And you really learn about how you learn and you learn to use tools like YouTube, (laughs) um, Google, You learn everything and you be a jack of all trades. I think that's the thing you have to be okay to get your hands dirty on everything. And even now when we hire, it's a really big part. Um, And as we hire more senior people, of course, we need them to be specialists. But in the startup world, you have to be okay to be a jack of all trades and to pick up something that you've never been trained in. That's totally new. Um, And I think we... In our careers, we've developed really strong problem-solving skills, both of us, and that's what's gotten us through. It's like if you're presented with something new, you don't go, shit, this is new. I'm not going to be able to do it. There's no one to set out a framework. It's like this is new. How do we figure this out? It might not be how someone else would do it or how someone trained in it would do it, but, like, you know, how do we do it that matters Mm -hmm. and works at our size? And I will say Vera and I have very complementary skill sets because Vera comes from a corporate background and I had exposure to merchandising and buying side of fashion. It meant that we could really split the business up and focus on specific parts of the business. Yes, we were a jacket of all trades and at one stage, you know, I was our designer. I've never (laughs) been a designer before. I've been exposed to design, but you just kind of have to be. And, you know, I was our planner and I was our buyer graphic designer as well. Um, You know, Vera did a lot more of the operational side of the business, um, a lot more to do with accounting as well. So I think that's why we've worked so well together as well due to our complementary skill sets. In the early days, we were both juggling full-time work and then coming back and working on Nimble and got to a stage where we needed to start spending more time in the business. And it made sense for me to step into the business full-time first just because of my background. So I guess that's how it happened. And then um, we also hired someone just to help with a lot of support. But Vera, in a way, had to go out there and be earning us an income (laughs) (laughs) while I was working in the business because we still weren't – I wasn't paying myself. So, And that's a mutual agreement we had between us. So That's uh, why it's great to live together. You know, we bought our groceries together. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, that's something we discussed in the early days. And it wasn't until we, it was two years in, we opened Bondi and the business was really starting to grow, especially online as well. And we were just so under-resourced. And then that's when Vera made the deep dive and Mm. moved across full time. But I think it's just really important to have an open dialogue and communications. And there's something in your gut that tells you now's the right move. Like your business kind of needs that extra push and you yeah. need to take that deep dive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I'm just like, that's very reflective. Yeah. Um, but there was something it's in like there. A parallel world. It, it is, is a parallel world. Like, it's kind of like where you like four years together. Together. Yeah, this yeah. is amazing. Like, yeah. yeah, you guys are us in it, hopefully, hopefully us in a few Absolutely. few years' time. And yeah, you plan out. But we, you know, you guys have at least three more years of living together. Yeah. We lived together yeah. for the first four yeah. years and we've only 
we are coming up to like a year mm. of living apart. You know, it's been, mm. it's still new. Yeah. Like um, it definitely living together, you live and breathe it, you get to know each other, you see everything that the other one's doing and you, you're really there to support each other. Yeah, yeah. Catch, <laughs> there was something that you said there, you're like, I'm not a designer but I had to learn how to design. I mean, isn't that quite gutsy starting a fashion label? You know, yeah. it is a fashion label at the end of the day without having that design experience or expertise. I've always been quite creative. So when I studied at uni, I studied at RMIT and it was a fashion business degree. We did have a bit of exposure to design and we had to learn how to sketch an illustrator. So thank God I had that skill set from the early days. So I could actually use Adobe programs and be quite creative in that. Um, Also, when we first started, we manufactured in Australia. So um, I went out and worked really closely with a pattern maker and I would literally go to her house and sketch up something and she would help me bring it to life in pattern form and then I'd go to the factory and work with them to make it come to life. So there was a really close working relationship because we chose not to start offshore initially. So I've always had exposure to a design team but um, there's so much that goes on in design Mm. Um, and it's it's a very technical job as well Mm. but – you just you have you learn. to learn. Like we couldn't mm. afford to pay someone to no. do it. So you just got to do it. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. Yeah. yeah. It really is. Is that one of the reasons that you decided to manufacture in Australia initially because you needed that expertise, support in person? Yeah, that was part of the reason. It was just you could work a lot quicker to market because the lead times were so short. So I would still um, source our fabrics from overseas have them imported in. Our factory was great here. They would house it all for us and we could be quite reactive. Um, Another reason was in Australia, you can produce really small production runs. Why your cost is high, I would rather pay $25 for a pair of leggings and manufacture like 80 to 100 units than go offshore and pay like $12 and have to manufacture at least 300. Still, your overall cost is smaller, so your investment smaller. Mm. It means you can constantly test in the market to see what your customers are reacting to and your inventory risk is a lot lower. So, I think in the early days, we were really focused on revenue rather than margin and then mm. also being quite quick to market while we were still getting our feelers out there. At what point did you decide to go offshore and what was, this, what was the impetus for that? I would say it was about, yeah, we've been trading for five years. I think it was like two and a half to three years ago. Why we loved supporting the Australian industry, manufacturing is really, really tough in Australia and it has been a dying dead industry for a while. So the technologies you have here, they're much better overseas. So it came down to um, we wanted to produce better garments and we had to look offshore for that. Um, Here when you manufacture, you have to source everything down to – thread elastics, um, you need to bring it all in-house to your factory, whereas overseas they can help you source that, even like right. the poly bags that gets packaged in. So it was becoming quite a big task to manage and there was a lot of levers you had to pull. And it really came down to um, technology. Like We're just – we weren't investing in – the factories don't invest in the right machinery here because the industry is really tiny and is dying off. And yes, it is sad, but um, we manufacture all of our fabrics in Taiwan and we decided to um, build a small little team on the ground in Taiwan and now we support um, local factories in Taiwan so we can keep a really tight supply chain over there Mm -hmm. from um, our fabric mills to our garment factories. What was that process like going offshore? Like how the hell did you find a factory that had the technology and the capability Mm -hmm. that you were looking for and the right team and how did you navigate that? It it is a lot of trial and error. Initially, Mm. we did start looking at China. Um, We looked on Alibaba. However, be warned on Alibaba, a lot of factories promote they can manufacture this product and it's like ripped off of some other person's product and their quality is quite poor. So initially I reached out to a few factories, got them to make exactly the same garment. 
got it back and assessed the quality and the pricing structure. So we did do a small portion in China. However, it was working, but I didn't love manufacturing in China. Um, And then at the time, it was great. Our partners on the ground right now, we knew them through one of our fabric mills. Um, They were then working for Kid and Ace out of their Hong Kong office looking after their production. When Mm -hmm. Kid and Ace shut down their global arm, they decided to go into more consulting type business. And so with the connection we had with the fabric side, they actually approached us with this business model. And I was kind of really struggling at the time and it came at a perfect opportunity. So they started as a team of two, then our team of four, two people do fabric, two people do production. And they help us with a lot of that side. So they go out and source new garment factories for us if we need that really specialise in the expertise we're looking for. Um, They liaise with the factories and we do a lot of liaising through them. So it just kind of like right time, right place type thing. Mm. I want to change um, gears a little bit and talk about your distribution model because originally you started as an e-com store and then you distributed through smaller boutiques before opening Mm. a store, your first store in Bondi. And from previous conversations, you're looking to expand your retail footprint. Can you talk us through why you're going down that path? I mean, a lot of stores are kind of shutting, especially in the US. You said before, like retail Mm. doom and gloom, which is not necessarily wholly true, but why have you decided to go down the retail path? I guess for us as a business, you know, coming back to this concept that we believe in this friends, sweats, feels, a really big part of that is friends, well, friends, sweats and feels. And to achieve that, we need a sense of community and we want to bring women together through exercise and, you know, setting that time aside for themselves. And that's why the retail part is so important. We've identified that online is where we're going to drive scale. Um, But as a brand in this day and age, we need um, credibility, we need trust and we need that human connection. And to do that, retail makes sense for us. Having these bricks and mortar stores where our brand lives beyond the screen um, and people can come in, they can touch and feel the product that we put all of this time and effort into developing and they can connect with each other. They can um, get advice. Um, You know, we really want to take the intimidation out of shopping for activewear and fitness. So retail for us is a really important part. Of course, they need to be profitable on their own, each store, um, but it is such a pivotal part of our overall brand strategy. And what we're working on now is really we're not, we want to make sure that we are truly omni-channel. We've born in the digital age. So of course, Mm. we're always digital. I think a lot of older brands are really struggling to sort of come to the digital age and they have a lot of bricks and mortar, but it's about making it a holistic experience. So your store and your online, what we're really trying to work towards is that it's a seamless experience for customers. And, you know, we're humans. We need Mm -hmm. that human to human interaction. I think online is great for convenience and therefore scale, but for that human interaction, retail is a really important part of building our brand and our community. It is. I mean, retail, uh, bricks and mortar retail is definitely an entirely different ball game, I suppose. Um, and there would have been a lot of things that you guys had to upskill in mm. during that process from leasing store design. I think you've got an interesting story about how, you know, you ended up fitting out some stores. I'd love to hear about that. Like, can you talk us through what you had to upskill in and what was that like compared to, I guess, setting up an e-com store? Mm. Yeah, I think we did it in stages and I will say quite naively it did work out for us but um we were meeting with a mentor one day so our Bondi store is on Hall Street um in Bondi um and then there's a famous cafe Bill Granger's cafe Mm -hmm. they're called Bill's so we're all meeting with a mentor one day having a catch-up with him and he was talking about you know you guys need to test your product like face-to-face with customers retail might be a good angle to look at. Otherwise, maybe even start with Bondi markets and see how you go there. And then when we finished our catch-up, we're walking down the street and he pointed out a store, which is our now store, and he's like, oh, that space would be great for you, but it's way too big. You'd need a taken on with another brand that you could work collaboratively together. And, you know, that's been vacant for quite a while. See if you can even get a pop-up lease 
or just even test out Bondi Market. So I think- Or there was a car park next to it and he was like, you could talk to the real estate agent and see if you could just set up some racks in the car park. (laughs) Not a bad idea. So, you know, Vera and I went away and I think it really- got us thinking about the whole retail um, angle. And instead of tackling Bondi markets, we're like, nah, let's just call up the leasing agent of this store and take it from there. So the next thing I, because Vera was still working, I was meeting with the leasing agent and thank God my dad happened to call me that day and he's from a commercial property background and he just happened to be up in Sydney for a board meeting and I was like, oh, I'm going to be looking at this store in Bondi and he's like, do you want me to come with you? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And thank God I did because when we walked in, I actually, because they were starting to question a lot about the size of our business, can you really take on a lease? So we introduced my dad as our investor (laughs) and, you know, he started negotiating with him and thank God, because I heard him at one point go, oh, well, what about like, you know, a two by three option? And afterwards I'm like, dad, what's a two by three option? (laughs) And, you know, for anyone that doesn't know, it's taking on signing up for two years and then renegotiating another option term. But we were really naive going into that. But then I think having, you know, dad, he, um, we took over negotiations. He kind of like guided us on what to say and do. The next thing you know, we had signed a lease and we were supposed to be opening in, I think it was like six weeks. It was coming up to Christmas. So we were able to say, oh, we want to get the keys after Christmas. So we're like, okay, shit, now we need to fit this shop out. We got a few contacts of full-scale shop fitters where they do like end-to-end, anything from design to all the contractors that come through to all the joinery. And when they asked us our quote or, I'm sorry, our budget, he was like, listen, I really want to help you gals out, but your budget won't even cover my overheads. So then we're like, shit, again, let's, we have to start getting creative with the way we want to present this store. So when you've got little budget, I think it's when you can really make things work and come to life. We started looking at potential furniture designers. I ended up designing our store and working with them on um, custom joinery, but using cheaper the cheap timber that the cheap timber that ikea it, right? uses yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> but um you know so joinery didn't cost us that much and then you know you ask around you get a carpenter he does all your carpentry work for you then he's got his electrician friend um and i think we started in stages also because we signed this lease so quickly we quickly realized we don't actually have enough stock to fill this door so let's start with a certain amount of racks get that going, get a bit of cash going through the business. And then, you know, our Bondi stores really evolved. We added in quite a few more rails within like after a year of trading there. Then we um, actually did a refurbishment to kind of elevate it, change the change room layout just last year. Mm. So we've done it in stages where, you know, it all comes back to like hitting these sales targets and milestones and when the business is ready to do that, taking on that next stage. When you, because you said you signed the site quite quickly, yep. had you sort of done your due diligence and done a feasibility and thought, okay, no. we can make X sales out of this space and this is what our target margin is and therefore this is how much rent we no. can pay and this is the staffing no. cost. No. <laughs> yeah. Was, you know, looking back, it's just that's a big risk and big investment. Termination and stupidity. I was going to say, is there a bit of stupidity? Um, yeah. But, you know, we trust in each other's skill set and how determined we both are Um, and we knew that we were going to work our butts off you know Cardia was working all hours doing all the stock and all of that on the shop floor on the shop floor (laughs) I remember working you know during the week at Free Hills as a lawyer and on Saturday we would work the shop floor and that for the first six months yeah and it was great because looking back we learned so much Mm, about our customer and we were able to evolve and we had fun we were hanging out with each other on a Saturday and actually selling our products to people but we weren't looking back if we had been just a little bit more planned but then if we had been more planned we might have said no to some opportunities Mm. as well but I think we were always really careful with our spending Mm. I think that's important, you know, not to splash out on things that aren't going to move the needle but might appear shiny. 
I want to talk about the community-driven initiatives that you have. I know there are some incredible businesses overseas that use their bricks and mortar stores to run things. Like I know there's a there's an um, active web brand over in New York, and they have um, their customers meet out the front one morning per week, and they have a run club. So they use their space to create that community to draw people in in other ways than just trying to sell the product. What do you guys do? How do you use your space to drive those more grassroots programs? It's similar. We open up our space to the community. Um, We host events ourselves. You know, we host yoga events. We do a run club as well in the lead up to City to Surf um, in Sydney. Um, So for the three months leading up every Thursday morning, we've teamed up with a local business called Buff Girls and we do a run club and we hold that um, in the store. And that's a really good way to build the community. It's not about revenue. It's about building this group of women that sort of all love getting together and doing run club in a non-intimidating way. Mm. In summer, we also open up the space. There's a lot of other local businesses who don't have the budget yet to have their own bricks and mortar space, but they've got great ideas and great product. And all they need is that connection with the community and people. And so we open, we have our community hub over summer. So that's when Bondi trades the best and there's the most foot traffic. And we have lots of aligned brands that come into the store and the space and they set up their own pop-up store. And they, you know, what we get in return is this vibe and this like great Mm -hmm. sort of we offer our customers something beyond just activewear you know they might be able to come and grab a candle or some organic skincare or some protein powder and what we give them in return is just the space um it's not a money making thing at all it's just trying to build that space and we're really fortunate to have these bricks and mortar locations what else can we do with those locations yeah and I think it's not enough for brands now just to sell product. Like you have to really deepen that connection with mm-hmm. the customer. And I think those, you know, live events and in-person sort of community building activities, you know, that's the way to do it. It yeah. gives us a greater purpose as well, you know, when we know what our why is beyond just, you know, we make great products and we stand by that. But as an as an active web business that prides itself in being functional and technical and with a signature aesthetic, we should make good products. Like mm. that's what that's our customers. That's the basis. Exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you said before, you know, when you're working in store, you were learning a lot about your customer, but also mm. these community events, I'm sure, give you the opportunity to interact with your customer, learn about them. What else are they looking for, you know, aside from functional and stylish Completely. And uh, the design team is a design team. We even hold um, design meetings in the store where we get the managers to pull together the local community. We try not to pick diehard fans of Nimbles, but getting together a community with, um, you know, a a different mindset as well. So we would hold a meeting around um, our what they're looking for in the market so we can really like listen to them and also improve our products for the future. I attend a studio in Melbourne quite regularly and you've got some stock there and literally everyone in the studio wears Nimble and it's just so interesting because I walk past and I and, and they refresh it and I can mm-hmm. see what's new. Mm-hmm. Is that a part of your strategy? How important is that? And do you build community through the studios as well as your own retail stores? Our strategy and what um, resonates with our community is a f- absolutely studios. For us as um, consumers, we trust our teachers. We trust our yoga teacher. We trust our Pilates teacher. And if they're wearing something and they recommend it, we, of course, trust them. We mm. also have this relationship where if I do a yoga class, I will go and chat to my instructor And I'll ask them where you bought something from Mm. or where are your leggings from or what do you think of them? I won't just turn to the person next to me. So I think the the relationship with some of us is one that's happened really organically. Imani and the women that run some of us, you know, they resonate with what we stand for as a brand so much as well and they love the product Um, and I think it's such a beautiful relationship because we sort of, we really do help each other. You know, we provide them with product and we allow them to offer their community product as well but they provide us with so much credibility and trust behind the brand because if they're all wearing it they're loving it Mm. Um, and of course I'll recommend it to their members yep and our um so our store managers are our community managers and I think that's how that relationship also came about so 
we have the store in High Street Armadale, which is just down the road. So Nat, our store and community manager there, has formed such good relationships with local like-minded businesses. That's how we kind of build out that framework. So she has such a good relationship with Marnie. Um, you know, the instructors get to come into stores. We host private shopping nights with um, their community as well. Mm. And it's how we can work together to offer each other something as well and build the community. Do you have plans to sort of expand that and sort of partner with more studios? Yeah, yeah. that's what we're looking at yeah. now. You know, you also see like our studio and that part of fitness, they're getting more and more sophisticated, more beautiful, their places to hang out. And with that, people want to look and feel a certain mm. way when they go to these beautiful places. And we want to make sure that we're part of that journey and we're serving our customers that way. So of course, it's a really big focus for us moving forward. Okay, so I want to sort of change tact um, quickly and talk about managing inventory or planning because I think that can be one of the hardest things about managing a product-based business. You don't always know what's going to sell. Your forecast might be off. You might overinvest in stock that doesn't sell or underinvest in something that flies off the shelves. How do you manage your planning process? What are the fundamentals? Inventory is a really tough one. And it's something we haven't always gotten right. Um, And looking back on it, I think it's come out of the phase of me trying to wear every product team's hat and um, neglecting the planning side of the business. It is crucial if you're an inventory-based business to work to an OTB, which basically means an open to buy. If you don't know how to build one out, I'm sure you can Google it and get templates out there. I have built one with help of um, our mentor, but it's basically a buy plan with telling your buying team how much cash by category they've got to buy. And it is really important that um, so you're forecasting in where you believe your opening stock figures will be. Um, so say if I'm looking at buying for October, November, December, I will forecast from our current stock on hand now where our opening stock will be in October we do it by category level and you're not always going to get it right, but it's about constantly reviewing and adapting. And the more history you have, the more accurate planning Mm. you can do. Um, And then basically with your opening stock targets, looking at your budgets and taking away your opening stock targets from your budget. And then that'll give you spit out your buy plan as such. We didn't always use a buy plan (laughs) and that got us into a tricky situation with our inventory. We are going through a phase where we were growing quite rapidly and we felt like our best sellers especially, we couldn't keep in stock long enough and, um, you know, we were rebuying. There was like we were probably underbuying in our business. So we kept buying and buying and also what happened was we started really growing our SKUs and our range and why our buying grids didn't change too much with buying a lot more SKUs, we had this compounding inventory problem. I think planning is really important to see what stock levels you're going to have, but that's why um, buyers need a buy plan to work to because you could plan a huge range and even though you're, you know, buying 300 units a SKU, if suddenly you go from a range size of 20 to a range size of 50, you're probably going to have too much inventory. So it's all around like planning your skew assortment and then also really planning um, to budgets and your inventory. So each month we look at our closing stock and then also where we hit budget. Mm. Um, A good lever is if we hit budget, what we're bringing in inventory will be right. But if we start exceeding budget, then that's a flag to us. We're potentially not going to have enough inventory because we've only bought to budget. If we start underperforming, then we know that we're potentially going to have like a heavier markdown period at the end of the season and maybe we need to start buying a little bit more lighter because our budgets were too aggressive. So it's constantly looking and evolving and analysing, um, you know, how you close each month. Um, you know, tracking to budget is really important because you're buying to budget and then looking to see how you're tracking against that. And how often do you check that. Is it something that you do daily, weekly, monthly? Um, We have weekly targets. However, 
peaks and troughs can happen Mm. in a month. So we really like properly analyze it monthly. Of course, we're planning on like a weekly basis. Some, you know, in peak seasons, our stores get transfers twice a week. Um, You know, we've got inventory coming in monthly, but we properly analyze and correct at the end of each Mm. month. You mentioned um, markdowns or promotions mm-hmm. just before. I'm interested to know what your take on this is because obviously if you've got dead stock, you want to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, it may be potentially not brand damaging, but you don't want to appear as a discount retailer. So how do you kind of manage that? You know, constantly being on markdown can be a really slippery slope totally. to training your customer to only purchase you on sale. We've got quite strict markdown rules where we only go into permanent markdowns in peak markdown periods where, you know, consumers are aware of. So that's like end June and Boxing Day sale. We do run like maybe two to three other promotions throughout the year. However, they're more flash sale type things where a customer will have to use a code and they will only last a couple of days. You know, our best sellers and our core product, we don't need to put on markdown. We never put them on markdown. So it's more the seasonal fashion thing, styles at the end of the season that will go on markdown. And, you know, customers come looking to buy that core product that is selling really well and you're training that them that they have to buy that full price. Um, and then, you know, they're purchasing some markdown stuff as a bit of an add-on. If we have experienced quite heavy inventory issues, which what recently happened with, you know, before we had proper open to buyers in place, Um, you know, we are really lucky that it was through a high growth area for us. We had to put quite a lot onto markdown, but it was SKUs we wanted to switch off anyway. And it meant that we just over exceeded our budgets, which was great. Um, If there is residual stock in the business after an end of a markdown period, then that stock gets packed up in our warehouse and put onto pallets to pay for cheaper storage and it kind of gets packed and held until we run an annual warehouse sale. Mm, Right. And so at our warehouse sale, it is really because you're selling product quite cheaply. However, it's really old inventory that to us isn't as damaging to our brand and we will only ever run a warehouse sale if we need to. Yeah. Yeah. And that only ever happens annually as well. Yeah. How do you stay ahead of the curve? Mm. Because it's such a quickly changing industry and there's new trends every season. How do you continue to innovate, stay ahead of the curve, stay different from your competitors? It can be tough and you can feel exhausted over it because, um, you know, us as a product team, we're working on the developments of two ranges at one time, they overlap while we're taking that third to market. So at one point, we're always kind of touching three ranges. It could be in a different life cycle. However, I feel like you can feel a bit of like design burnout. For us, it's really important. We, you know, because we wanted to bring this fashion aesthetic to our brand, at one stage, prints were doing exceptionally well. And, you know, I feel like our prints had a really unique, nimble DNA to them. Um, They had this level of sophistication to them as well. We are starting to see a bit of a shift from prints to solid colours. So it's like how how can we do prints differently? Like we're starting to see it on a lot of like, you know, dark bases now Um, with our solid colours, our customers still like that added point of difference. So it's like, how can we make our solid tights have that little fashion aesthetics. Mm. We play with a lot of like, you know, laser cutting or taping or screen printing on them as well. So for us, it's listening to our customers, reacting to sales. Like colour palette's really big for us too. And I think that's how we can bring design into it. We often look at what high end is doing in terms of colours and get inspiration from there. There's so many options you can look at in tights and it's diversifying that as well. So right now we've got a big focus on our sports bras categories, making sure we're covering for sports bras anything from like studio workouts to um, lower intensity and um, smaller cup size to that larger cup size and higher intensity, which that is quite a tricky one to get right mm. with the technology you have to put in that. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for us in leggings as well. I'm looking at different fabrications, different fabrications 
for a sense of like performance workouts, whether it's studio or more high intensity. Customers need different fabrics for that. They also, everyone likes different sensations. Some people Mm -hmm. like that firm, tight, compressed um, feeling and some people want that kind of naked sensation on them. That's something that feels like a second skin. It's really lightweight to wear and it's no distraction tight. So we're really trying to explore that like sensory element as well in active wear too. There's definitely innovation in the way that you've approached sustainability and you've created this um, signature compressed light fabric, um, which is made from plastic bottles. So I want to hear more about that. What sparked that idea? Why did you decide to create your own signature fabric range and how important is sustainable and ethical business to you? Sustainability only came to us probably about two and a half years ago when We came to the realisation and I think once we started our own business, you get to realise how much waste there is and that also you're contributing to this. And as a business, you will always have an element of that, but it's about being mindful of where you can choose different business practices to try and reduce that. So because a lot of active wear is made out of synthetic yarns, We had this idea of, um, well, surely we can use recycled material instead of um, virgin yarns and use recycled materials to turn it into our fabric. So we were over in Taiwan and we are discussing this with the fabric team over there. And at the time there was like the rise of the recycled bottle, um, plastic bottle getting melted down and turning into a yarn and then knitting it up into a fabric. So that is basically our compressed light um, fabric, which makes up 80% of our range. So six recycled bottles goes into one legging and two into a sports bra, which is really exciting. So we are now starting to look at how else we can use recycled um, materials in other fabrics, um, including shorts, tops as well. And then we're also looking at our packaging. I remember being at store one day when I was helping the girls unpack a big shipment because it was quite late. Um, we just got a big stock delivery to stores. And as well, like each of our garments is wrapped up in plastic which it needs to be for, well, it needs to be protected in our warehouse. And I was embarrassed by the amount of plastic that ended up on the floor. And I think then that's what sparked me to um, what other methods can we use to package up our garments. Um, We've just launched using compostable bags as such in, um, yeah, for our poly bags, which is really exciting. Now we're looking at how can our swing tags be more sustainable, our mailer bags? Um, it's something that's an evolving mm. process for us. It's so amazing that you're doing that. And we were saying off mic before that consumers now have that expectation of brands. Mm. It's not enough to just sell a product. Consumers want to know that brands stand for the same things that they do. And I think your target customer and the young consumer cares about sustainability and has that expectation. So yeah. um, obviously you're doing it for a moral reason because you believe in that, but um, I'm sure consumers would respond really well to that as well. Mm. They absolutely do. But I guess we also come back to the fact that first and foremost, we have to be a profitable and sustainable business. And that framework then allows us to go and pursue all these other things that like feed our soul um, and make us feel like we can really get behind this brand and our staff and our community therefore really get behind it because we are we are more and more so standing for something else that is um, that they can identify with emotionally. Totally. Have these sustainability initiatives kind of altered your cost structure? Did you have to look at that and go, okay, is this actually feasible for us to do this? Mm. And doing things in a more sustainable fashion is often going to be more expensive, especially Mm. because the technology can be newer, um, but it's an investment that we're willing to make, but an Mm. investment that we analyse and make sure that, yes, we can take on a bit of extra cost, but it's not going to impact our business in a negative way because if our business goes under because we've made this choice to no longer use electricity and use only solar power or something like that and we can't keep going, then everything that we've worked for and built up, it just goes away. So I think we need to come back. We talk about this concept of conscious always. So, yes, it's consciousness from a social ethical perspective is really important to us and we're always conscious, but we make a choice that makes sense for the business as well. So you've obviously 
been around for five years. You've experienced pretty insane growth over that time. How has the process of scaling been for you? Has it been challenging? What are some of the things that you've come up against as you've grown? Structure, being organised. I think your challenges change and we are personally challenged at the moment, which we really enjoy. But as we've grown, I think org structure is a big one. We've always been, as we touched on before, a jack of all trades. It's been very flat and we want it to still be very flat, but we need experts in different parts of the organisation. And for us at the moment, it's really about setting out a roadmap, a framework so that we know what tasks we want to keep holding on to, what tasks we need to get a professional into or an expert, um, setting out the framework for the team and then really finding where we need to add value and then looking at where we need to hire. So I think a big part of growing up and scaling for us has been implementing that structure. We are still a small business and a startup, but we need to start thinking like a big business. How have you determined which bit of the business you need to hire for first? I'm sure there are a million people you could hire, but how do you decide, okay, where to put the resourcing? Yeah, it's been a part of the right person as well. Culture is so incredibly important to us and you get the right people in the role and they will grow with you and they will open your eyes to things you never knew. So I think part of it is the right people and who, what's going to move the needle? You know, you can. there is so much stuff that you can hire for, um, especially at our size and what we want to achieve. But, you know, where is the best deployment of that wage? Where are we going to see the best returns? Mm. I think that's how we have to and look at it. I think you, can, you get to know when a particular department is constantly under a lot of pressure and they need that extra resource there. We're in such an exciting stage where we need to continuously think about the future, but when you're so caught up in the day-to-day and barely treading water, then I think that's when you realise you've got potential resourcing issues. (laughs) For me, I look back and I did design way too long. I only stopped wearing that hat mid last year and it wasn't until an opportunity presented me and I'm like this girl is amazing and now I look back and I'm like how do we not have a designer and you know now I'm really assessing the different teams and there are areas that need the help Mm. to help us get to that next level. Mm. We're going through a stage of letting go. I know for me personally, you need to let go. You know, I look after the brand and marketing and digital side, but I'm a commerce law graduate. You know, I I have a gut feel, but I need experts in there. So part of that is recognising that you've done a really great job so far, but to take it to the next level, you need people that are experts. And I think that we've come to be okay with that really and to really um, value that and to go and seek out experts so that we can learn and grow and and let go of things that we're probably not the best at. Yeah, and essentially, you know, we were talking before, you'd mentioned that by scaling and hiring, it's forcing you up Mm. into more of a leadership Mm. position Mm. and then there are struggles that come with that. There are struggles that come with leading and managing others. What's your experience been? We're still learning Um, and I think more and more our role in the business is forward-looking, making sure we set out where we're going, making sure that we have a framework for our people and removing roadblocks so that our people can perform at their best. I think more and more that is our role in the business and we need to make sure we're doing that and not so much of the doing. And we're learning, we have mentors in terms of how we manage people, how we have tough conversations, how we talk to people differently. And we're realising, you know, people learn differently. People want to hear feedback differently and we need to tailor that to each other. We're lucky that we have each other to bounce off Mm. and we have a really nice open relationship. We give each other feedback all the time. It comes from a place of like really wanting to help each other and I think we know that. I think you need that. Otherwise, if you're just in this glass tower by yourself with no one giving you feedback, you become a tyrant and 
Yeah. Mm. And I think Vera and I came from a background where we didn't have a lot of management experience. Of course, we had managers and, you know, you can draw from inspiration of that, but we didn't have the experience in managing people. So it's something that we're still learning and evolving. And it's really clear to us that everyone learns and works differently and it's about being adaptable and also giving people a really clear roadmap and outlining expectations. Expectations is such an important one. Just even planning it out what an exceptional job looks like. So when it comes to even review time, it keeps kind of like us accountable. If someone's performing really well, then, you know, that's a check for us where we need to continue to give people opportunities. However, if someone's not quite performing so well, then it's about, you know, performance managing them to get them up to a level where we expect them to be at, but being completely transparent with what that looks like. The co-founder relationship can be really tricky at times, especially, you know, you guys live for four years together. I'm sure that posed its own challenges. I mean, it does. Mm-hmm. We live together. So mm-hmm. like, you know. Sorry, what? Mm-hmm. No, you like, I like, the problem? No, I love you. I like, love you too. <laughs> but it's a unique situation. Yeah. What's your relationship like and how have you sort of dealt with some of the challenges that have come with that? We've had lots of blow-ups with each other. Not lots. I think we probably once a year, mm. I would say. We have a, you know, a bigger blow up. We haven't had one for a while. Um, And I think it's because of communication. It's really important to communicate with the other person and tell them what you're thinking and what you're feeling. Take it away. Think about where the other person is coming from. I think both of us have done a lot of putting ourselves in the other person's shoes because even though we're best friends and we've been best mates since we're 14 as humans, we think and we operate really differently. So it's that. But I think also like we're like sisters and we both appreciate that first and foremost, it's like a marriage, you know, if our relationship is broken, everything about this business under us is broken. So we need to make sure that that is humming and working. And I think that we both have that as like our, you know, our crux of the relationship. We have to work together and I think that's what gets us through things. And there's this huge amount of respect and trust for each other. So even when you have an argument or something, it's because you're seeing things differently. It's not because one person is trying to screw the other person over or be an asshole about it. And I think where these arguments have stemmed from is a build-up in the other person where it hasn't been addressed quickly enough. And so this frustration built and so we realise now the importance of communication and addressing it straight away also, it's so important that, um, you know, the team never sees frustration between the two of you. Mm. Um, you know, when we have had, I won't call them disagreements, but, you know, we've been frustrated with one another. Like that is very much behind closed doors. Like that's got nothing to do with your team. Mm. It's for us two to work through. Mm. I'd love to know what you think of each other in terms of what your strengths are or what you what you really value in each other. Vera is 100% a hustler. She will go out there and learn and hustle and get contacts and people on board. Hustle is the right word for Vera. Love that. And I think that it's balanced really well because what I've realised that I do is I'm like this and that and this and that Mm. and I don't do a lot of the thinking. What Cardia does really well is she's really considered. You know, she thinks about you know, if I go to her with this crazy idea, she won't just like go, oh yeah, great. She'll be like, okay, well, have you thought about, you know, the impact on this and the impact on that? So I think like we actually balance each other really well. You know, I am very full out of the gates and Cardi pulls me back and she really thinks about things in a much more holistic sort of longer term, big picture way. We have a few final questions we want to ask you. I'm really curious, where do you guys draw inspiration from for new products or new marketing campaigns or more uh, new community events or just new ideas? Where do you get your new ideas from? The team, that's a big one. Mm. Um, Customers, I think also looking overseas and seeing what other people are doing in 
other um, markets. You know, everyone draws inspiration from what's been done before them. You know, we're not creating new medications or things that are like, you know, totally cutting edge and new. I think a lot of this stuff is about seeing what else has been done, but then how can we do it in a way that is true to our brand and resonates with our audience? What keeps you awake at night? We thought about this and you know what? We're so bloody tired that we kind (laughs) of just go to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) I mean, a lot keeps us worried. What are you worried about? What, what, What are some of your biggest fears? For me, it's like that we can't keep this momentum going and we can't keep growing and it all falls to shit. Mm. Fair. And finally, what's next for Nimble? Lots. Come on, we know you had a strategy session here in Melbourne, so tell us a, tell us one thing that came out of that. What's in the three-year plan? There's a lot we need to do in terms of the digital space um, and I think out of that we are really focused on making sure that our online and retail stores focus and operate as one. We need to not think about we have our e-com channel and we have our retail channel. It is one revenue channel and our customer experience needs to be the same. If you're a VIP online, you're a VIP in-store. And so we have a lot of work to do there and that comes Mm. back to sort of looking at our tech stack, what it looks like now, what it needs to look like in three years to get us there and working towards that goal. Exciting. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram, lady.brains, and head over to ladybrains.com.au to find out more about our events and other cool things that are happening.